Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Thirsty Thursday live stream from 7 until 9 weekly. Here's your host, Tim Hill. So, without too much further ado, um, I'm going to bring in young Ed. So, Ed, you're in the room. Hello. Thank you for the applause. <laughs> you're welcome. So, Ed, if you can tell us a bit about your part of, uh, in Wessex archaeology, what your job is and, and how you go about it, that would be great. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I'm a bit different from your previous two, so a bit different from Lo and Sam. So, I'm an environmental specialist. And that's essentially a way of saying that I look at human environment interactions in the past. Uh, and I've got a particular sort of set of specialisms. Uh, and so I look at plant remains. So that can be sort of a plant in quite a broad botanical sense, ranging from something like a massive tree down to a you know, really small weed. Um, so on a day-to-day -day basis, I am um, sort of involved in that commercial aspect um, of our company that Lo and Sam had talked about. So I look at seeds um, and bits of wood that are recovered from archaeological excavations. And using those, I'm sort of interested in topics such as what crops people grew in the past, how those crops changed through time, um, if they were exploiting wild plant resources like hazelnuts and crab apples before farming, um, and if they continued doing that even after the introduction of farming. Um, also get interested in quite a, quite a diverse sort of range of areas. So it could range from fuel procurement for iron production. Um, I could be looking at what the past environment just looked like at different points in time. Um, and then because of the nature of the specialism I've got, so I'm capable of identifying bits of wood. Sometimes I'm given artifactual evidence. So recently I was identifying what wood was in a medieval axe um, and those are quite nice little tangents to what I normally work on which are what we call charred plant remains and wood charcoal so these are sort of burnt plant remains that sort of form that this background sort of noise a bit sort of a bit like rubbish almost on a settlement and they're sort of the detritus that is formed by everyday occupation so it could be people throwing the ashes out of their fire um, and then discarding it into a ditch or a pit near their settlement it could be them accidentally burning down their house and so that's sort of the bread and butter of what I look at and so I think it can be quite surprising to many who aren't that involved in archaeological circles that we have specialists who focus just on plant species um, and things like that because we perhaps don't get the glamour of say a complete pottery vessel or a piece of gold but yeah i'm much more interested in a seed you, you know you can throw away the gold for what i'm, for what I'm interested in <laughs> that's fascinating work that you do then so how do you go about identifying uh, a bit of charcoal uh, and where it's come from how do you how do you age it um, yes, yeah, so we've got quite a few methods. So I 
people in my office joke that I hoard microscopes because I've got three. Um, so I've got a quite a low powered one. So that goes to about 40 magnification. And then I've got two higher powered ones, which go to 400 and then a thousand magnification. And so one of the um, things that is perhaps a bit surprising about wood is that microscopically it's very identifiable. So when you take a slice of a tree, um, we look at sort of the distribution of vessels within it. And I won't go into the actual details of it because it, it, it's quite complicated. Um, but essentially, by shining a very powerful light through it, we can sort of see very particular anatomical characteristics that then we can use to identify a particular wood species. Um, and everything that I do is based off modern reference material. So I've got sort of my own axe, my own saw, and with uh, landowners' permission and stuff like that, I quite often go around and source random bits of timber from species. So, for instance, I've got modern oak in my collection. When I find archaeological oak, I can compare the two, and it could be the same in anything. It could be a, you know, a piece of hazel. Um, it could be a non-native species like um, Douglas fir or something like that. So it's all dependent on that having that modern reference material. So my office is rammed with different bits of twigs, other random bits of plants, because it's not just the wood that we're looking at when we're looking at trees sometimes. It can be the actual leaves. It can be the little tree buds. They're very identifiable. And also the seeds of, of better known ones, so like hazelnut shell is a classic one. Um, and we're really interested in getting these out of archaeological sites because um, they provide us with a method of dating archaeological sites as well. So we can use radiocarbon dating, which is a very complicated method that uh, measures the decay of a radioactive isotope, essentially that accumulates in living organisms. And we can, through some complex calibration, essentially get a very accurate and absolute date for almost anything uh, extending back about 50,000 years. Good grief, 50,000 years. Yeah, that's so a little that's, while that's ago, isn't it? Yeah, it's just one of our dating methods. There's a few There's a few out there that can go back even further than that. But radiocarbon mm. dating is sort of, that's our routine. That's something we use a lot. Mm. And do you use a special machine for that? Yeah, so as big as Wessex is as a company, we can't afford one of them. They're, they're multi-million dollar piece of instruments. So we send them to external uh, laboratories. So um, there's several of these in universities across the UK in particular. So we've got a little selection that we that we use. Mm. So. And I guess they obviously uh, bill you for it. Yeah, they do. <laughs> so just if anybody's got any questions for, for any of the guests so far, um, pop them in the chat box. And, um, and when we, we get everybody back in, we'll have a, have a chance to have a chat uh, and answer your questions. So what else is involved with what you do? Um, so although on a yeah, day-to-day basis, I'm sort of involved in that commercial aspect of producing reports. So, you know, right, contributing to our client reports. So I'm just sort of one component of that cog. Um, so for instance, I've been recently looking at um, Iron Age settlements. So I've been writing a report on what the landscape around that settlement looked like, you know, how 
how open was it do we have any areas for woodland and then what crops they were growing and how they were growing them is another one we can look at so we can look at sort of the ecology of the arable weeds that we find and get quite a detailed picture of you know how people were actually cultivating in the past um it's find it quite a yeah tangible way of looking at the past because until quite recently most people were actually farmers or engaged in food production in one way or another and so it's nice looking at the sort of the debris that they generated through on a daily basis um and how tastes and attitudes shifted through time to different crops so in the roman period they they were crazy about spelt wheat which is sort of a very old form of wheat they absolutely loved it they were probably getting quite drunk on it because in the late roman period we find a lot of evidence for them making beer from it but then you pass on two or three centuries after the roman period and they've decided they don't like it anymore and they've switched to a completely different crop yet if you were to look in germany they still grow spelt wheat today and it they love it and they produce very particular foodstuffs from it mm. um and so whilst we have those sort of aspects um of it of looking at the past i increasingly as i sort of go forward in my career i'm really interested in the sort of relevance of what of the data i produce um so you can a lot of what i do is what a lot of what i do is akin to ecology so in many respects i could describe myself as a paleoecologist so that's an ecologist who's looking at um the past essentially um and that's that's really relevant when we are say looking at nature conservation so for example if we've got a, a rare habitat that we're interested in preserving so a really nice example of this is say the new forest um across hampshire we can use archaeological data to sort of understand how that habitat developed what human impacts there were that led to its creation and then we can all we can you know feed it into this model to sort of understand how is that habitat going to change going forward with as the climate changes but also we can look at our conservation practices and we can sort of set them in a far wider historical framework and sort of understand you know, sort of you know really understand why why does that landscape look like it does um and that's something i get yeah the most interested in so whenever i sort of go out for a walk anywhere that's i get quite interested by sort of the plants growing on the ground but then also understanding exactly why that habitat looks the way it does because i think a lot there's a lot of people think a lot our habitats in the um uk are quite natural sometimes um but when we look at the archaeological evidence we can very much say they're cultural landscapes so like the new forest is a classic example of a cultural landscape it's it's not really natural in any sense of the word it's something that's been so heavily crafted by human intervention yeah it has that natural look so yeah striving to find that relevance that modern present day relevance in our data is really really like keeps me very engaged and then mm. and in events like this and disseminating it so i do go out giving talks say so i've done one recently to a natural history society which was really nice you know just sort of extolling the virtues of some of the data sets we produce that people just may not be aware of sometimes yeah so 
looking back over sort of a period of time, can mm-hmm. can you see how crops have differed with the different temperature ranges throughout the years? Say sort of three or four hundred years ago, the, the climate around here was slightly different to what it is now. Um, uh, to sort of coming forward, can you see a change in the types of crops that were grown uh, in in our area? Yeah, we absolutely can. Um, so there's one one of the one really interesting area that sort of emerged um, in the last couple of years, and this is because of work that companies say like that Wessex do, basically generating massive data sets. So after agriculture was first introduced into the UK, that's about 4000 BC. Everything was going really well. You know, they had um, their cereals. They were definitely cultivating cereals. And at this time, they were cultivating a cereal called Emma wheat, um, which is a bit of like, it's a bit like an ancestor of what we make pasta from. That's its closest relative. Um, and that was going really well for about two to 300 years. And then there's a massive blip and it changes hugely and their crops just disappear, you know, mm. and what it looks like is there's a massive shift towards pastoralism instead, perhaps, or there could be a big population decrease. Um, there's still some gaps in our data, so some of it's open, a bit open for interpretation. Um, but then there's another period where there's well-known climate change, which is at the end of the Bronze Age. Again, we see quite a shift in crops around that time. So that I mentioned Emma wheat, that crop, around that mm. time. Emma wheat starts to get replaced by spelt wheat. And again, that could be climatic influences because it's thought that spelt could be better adapted at growing in a wider range of cultivation conditions. Um, And then, yeah, some of the well-known coal periods would say in the 14th century. Um, We sometimes struggle to get the resolution in the archaeological record we need to look at a particular century. But we do certainly see sort of changing crop preferences in response to changing climate in the past and people doing different things in response to that climatic change. So very much like today, like they weren't trying to grow crops in unsuitable places. Yeah, at times they were growing crops in places that we now can't grow them. Or we would think, wow, how on earth did they do that? Or perhaps they didn't and it was very unsuccessful and they gave up. (laughs) <laughs> so, so I mean, the, the, is there a pattern over over the centuries of of the different crops and how they were grown, and and, and or, or is that correlated with the changing um, way people lived at the time? So, some of it is definitely the way to do with the way people lived, um, and I say the Roman period is a really nice example of of a quite a shift so we sort of see more agglomeration into towns you know people it becoming a bit more of an urban society and that's quite that's quite a shift from the preceding iron age so example in the iron age they tended to store a lot of their cereal grains below ground in very large pits it's a really effective way of storing them sort of in these we might call them underground silos however with the beginning of the roman period you know that just that sort of almost stops and they shift towards, say, ab- above-ground granaries. 
and then but then with some quite big implications for things like grain pests so like the granary weevil sort of explodes into action when people start doing that because you've literally just given it the best home it could ever hope for a warm granary supplied with hot air endless food supply um mm. but also you have the military aspect so they you know they, they need to supply their armies we know they're moving crops around we know they're importing some crops from abroad but we can definitely see that the effect of them moving these crops say to sites along hadrian's wall um and this sort of i mentioned earlier this um production of beer or rather it would be ale at that time because they didn't have hops or mead um, yeah mead is one so yeah we do find evidence for mead quite surprisingly um there's a plant that grows near riversides which we think they probably put in it called meadowsweet um which is sort of this it's quite a pretty white flower smells very very sweet when you go past it we found evidence of that um in the bronze age um but yeah and then essentially yeah there's, there's huge changes and shifts almost entire reversals and changes in what people were growing at different points in time throughout the past so it's very much a boom and bust at, at certain points to do with the population and always what we're looking at is reflecting those sort of those wider changes in the archaeological record so the wider political and social changes that are going on so whether people are living in sort of fixed farmsteads or whether they're a bit more itinerant and moving around more or whether they're living in cities compared to rural areas you know we we can pick up all these sort of different traces uh through the nature of the evidence they look at brilliant well ed <laughs> that's fascinating absolutely fascinating what you do what i'm going to do is i'm going to drop you down uh and then i'm going to bring in young rachel and then we'll bring you back a little bit later so rachel you're in the room good evening good evening how are you yeah very well thank you yeah enjoying listening to dr ed and all his fascinating facts absolutely so rachel can you tell me what you do so I am a project officer for Wessex, which means that I go out and I run excavations. And then when I finish running the excavations, I come in and I write the client reports and the publications for them. So I run all sorts of sites from excavating Victorian cemeteries in a Victorian railway works in central London to Saxon boundaries down in Dorset to I've worked at Stonehenge and sort of yeah all across everywhere from Anglesey down to Cornwall across to Kent and up to Norfolk um so yeah you name it I've kind of had a chance to dig it up a lot of it um yeah so I work on a work on a real real range of sites field field work in itself is a specialism um understanding how to unpick a site and how to interpret that site to get the most amount of uh, information out of that site whilst giving the client, you know, reasonable value for money and, you know, being realistic about how much time and, and expenditure it's going to take. A proper archaeological excavation is a very expensive undertaking to do. Uh, we are part of the planning system and, you know, our clients are expected to fund us, but we also have to be realistic. If we are too expensive, they just won't build houses on there. And there are several examples of places where done properly, the archaeology can be preserved in situ. So we've got a site 
on Salisbury Plain, where we found two um, interlocking barrow ditches, which had never been seen before. Uh, they were Neolithic henges, which had then been reused as barrows in the Bronze Age. And when they came to develop that site, they changed where they were going to place the houses. So that became part of their green space and is now a nice play area with a reconstruction of one of the hinge monuments. And they've then, because it's sat up on a nice hillside overlooking Stonehenge and houses that would have been put on that particular part of the land have moved to where the play area was originally designed to do. So our work is everything from that very first basis of little evaluation trenches and creating background knowledge on the sites right through to full excavation and the writing publications for people to read, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully <laughs> yeah so yeah it's that the full gamut of of being a, a fieldwork archaeologist crikey i mean that uh, that must take an awful lot of planning to start with so where yeah. does where does where does the planning actually start for uh, an archaeological dig in in particularly in the uk so in the UK, for, for what we do within commercial archaeology, when, if you, you've won the lottery, Tim, and you buy a nice little farm and you decide that you're going to make some money out of it and you want to put some houses on there, or a wind farm, or a solar farm, you, you decide you want to develop it in some way, uh, you will have discussions with your planning office and every planning office will have, so all the counties have dedicated planning archaeologists who know their county or their area and they'll, they'll know it very well and they will look at those planning applications and decide on what they think is a reasonable uh, way moving forward. These can often be staged so they can start off with they can say we want some more background knowledge on the site and going from there they will then say we may they want, may want geophysical survey. Based on that you may they will normally want um, evaluation trenches where we will go in and we'll sample typically sort of four to six percent of the site, either in a very set sort of pattern, um, random pattern. So just sort of everything north, south and east, west. Or if it's been if it's had a geophysical survey and we found anomalies that we're interested in, we would target the trenches on those. And then based on that, we would then go move forward into um, an excavation strategy and at each stage of those so with our evaluations and with our excavations we have to produce documents planning documents called written schemes of investigation and these written schemes of investigation we produce them but they have to go to our client and to the planning archaeologist and they have to be agreed by all the parties so everybody knows where they stand um, everyone knows the scope of the work we're doing, what's going to happen if we find human remains, what will happen if we find treasure, what will happen if we find more archaeology than we're anticipating, where our boundaries and limits are, and also how we're going to progress this through into the post-excavation phase. And once we've done, so if we take a, a site where we've gone out, we've done a geophysical as, as I can think of one that's that's not too far from you guys down at Bots Botley in Hampshire down in on the south there so Botley bypass they they're putting a new road in and they are putting houses on next to the road so um probably about 10 years ago we went and did the we did some desk-based assessment so we wrote a document that described 
all the archaeology then up by geophysical survey so colleagues from geophys went and scanned all of the ground and based on those scanned results we then did a targeted evaluation where we looked at potential features based on those we then came back and did our targeted excavations where we found some roman working sites we found some roman field boundary ditches um, we had some watering holes and a, and a not an urn cremation we had a, a an inverted urn that had the potential to be a cremation but didn't have any cremated remains in it and they're not unusual to find these urns that have sort of been put in and we think they were possibly marker boundaries um so we went in and we did all all of those but with each one we've gone back and we've produced our written we've produced a report we then for the next phase of work we produce a written scheme of investigation which is agreed by all parties so after the evaluation we came in we wrote the report based on that we produced a written scheme of investigation which was agreed by all parties we then go out went out we did the excavation we came back in and we then do what's called a post excavation assessment and updated project design which is where we assess everything we found from the evaluation and from the excavation. And we update, so we come up with a formal report that's quite detailed and um, I wouldn't say formulaic, but it, it's it's very specific about what it's telling us. It's very It's very much about assessing exactly this is what we have. These are the types of ditches. These are the dates of these ditches. And based on that, we then come up with an updated project design. So if we found deposits that have got a lot of charcoal and Ed's seen them and has said, oh, you've got some nice charcoal deposits and I'd like to do some radiocarbon dates on them. We will then have this updated project design where we will say, go back to the client and say, based on what we've done, we would like to do um, radiocarbon dates and we'd like to look at these pottery forms or vessels more. And based on that, we then produce the pub those results, we then produce the publication. So it's very much a staged process with time taken between each stage to carefully plan. If we find something very exciting in the evaluation, that's the client's chance to then turn around and decide if they want to mitigate by preservation in situ and moving. So the Bullford example is, is one where they took what we'd found we excavated a Saxon cemetery on that site, but we had, but they moved the houses so that they could preserve in situ these two really unique um, henge barrow features that were interlocking. So it gives everyone a chance, a breathing stage to assess what we've got from each one and to move forward. Um, so that's very much how archaeology works within the planning system, which is 99% of, of the work we do is the client based work. Um, from a, an amateur point of view, uh, I, I started digging with, a, with an amateur group. They had employed uh, a university to provide their expertise so that they had, had professional expertise on site to make sure that the excavation was done to a high standard. And there's no, we don't have legislation in this country that stops people from going out and running amateur excavations. And I volunteered on quite a few. Some have been very, very well run. There's some really excellent work done by amateur archaeologists looking at sites that would are not threatened by development, but are interesting. Um, and I've worked on some that 
are um, interesting, shall we say. So, but there's there's nothing you could set your own archaeology group up, and you could, with the landowner's permission, you could go out and dig as long as it's not a scheduled site. Um, there's very little protection for sites in in the UK beyond um, sites that are scheduled monuments and sites covered by the Treasure Act or with human remains. So if you've got a wow. Roman villa hiding in your back garden there, Tim, and you want to dig it up, you can set a little <laughs> little group up and, and off you go. Get the shovels out. Yeah, literally, literally. Um, yeah, I, I've got a project that's going on at the moment that's my own personal little thing. It was flagged to me by a friend who's a, who's a metal detectorist. He had permission from the landowner to dig. He started to find some interesting bits and pieces We've been up and we started to do some field walking and I've kept we've kept all the relevant authorities in, informed. So we've been liaising with our local portable antiquity scheme, our local finds and finds liaison officer to make sure all the metal detected finds are reported. We've been out and we've done field walking. Um, and I've got a lovely database with everything we've everything we've recorded, we recorded with what three words, so that we've got GPS locations on on all the bits of brick and CBM we found. And we're going to slowly move forward. It's a massive field. <laughs> It'll be a long ongoing wow. site, but it's something that when the crop's off, we will go out with a team of 10, 15 volunteers on a weekend and systematically start walking the field and see if we can pinpoint areas of interest. Um, we're also in discussions with the county archaeologist, but this particular potential site is um, in an area of outstanding natural beauty and is unlikely to ever be threatened by development. Well, never say never, but highly, highly unlikely to be uh, to be threatened by development. It could be threatened by farming, but it's um, it's not one that's that's really under any commercial threat in the foreseeable future. But it's an wow. interesting site, and it's local people's history and archaeology, and it belongs to them as much as it does to us. The landowner is very engaged and involved and keen for us to have a look. So that's what, you know, that's something I do on the weekends because, you know, I love my job. <laughs> do so, doing your spare time, your day job. <laughs> well, I try, I, occasionally, yeah, I do try and find time for my husband and my dogs. But, yeah, you know, it's just it's, the, the occasion. It's, it's amazing how much is actually involved. Yeah. Um, I mean, the average Joe on the street just hasn't got a clue how much work is actually involved in no in just doing a survey to start with yeah um amazing amazing yeah thank you very much rachel you're welcome just gonna just gonna drop you down now and yeah. say thanks and then i'll do a quick <laughs> the tim heel thirsty thursday live stream from seven until nine weekly Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.